Welcome to Earworm, dialogues on hearing health you can't stop thinking about. Earworm is brought to you by the National Center for Hearing Assessment and Management at Utah State University, known as NCHAM. I'm Will Eiserman, and I'm the Associate Director of NCHAM, and I'm your host today. You know, we all make assumptions as we navigate various challenges in life. Many of those well-tested assumptions allow us to function very efficiently. But sometimes our assumptions may be incorrect. Today, we're going to be talking about one family's experience that illustrates this point in the context of a young child's development that took an unexpected and unnoticed turn. It's a story of a child who passed all of her newborn screenings, including hearing screening. Our guest today is Valerie James Abbott. Let's set the stage. At this point in the story, you and your husband, Chris, are parents to one three-year-old girl whose name is Mary Claire. And now you're going to have a second child. How was that second pregnancy? So the pregnancy itself was pretty, pretty uneventful. Bringing her into the world was another story. My first child was born via C-section because she was breech and she was nine pounds. So with, with Bridie, I really wanted to try and avoid that because it was a very painful recovery. So we decided to try a VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean. And um, that ended up in an unidentified uterine rupture. And um, eventually when they, you know, put me in for an emergency C-section, it wasn't until they opened me up and saw the massive blood loss that they realized that um, I had had a uterine rupture, which is a very serious medical emergency um, that had gone on far too long. And so I didn't meet Bridie until several hours after her birth. And how was she through all of that? So she came out just shy of nine pounds. She was very healthy, super healthy. How about all those hospital screenings they do on, on her? How'd she do? She passed everything. There was, she was a hundred percent super healthy, happy, hungry kiddo from the moment that I met her all the way through till we brought her home and in the months that followed. Yeah. Okay. And so she passed her hearing screening and all she the sure other did. ones. She yeah. sure did. And then, and then in those, those next weeks and months you had, I assume, well, child visits Mm-hmm. that you went to and did you do that pretty consistently like you're supposed to oh yes with both kids the well checkups the vaccinations everything was on track I had my little you know chart and checking everything off and Bridie was and still is my healthiest kid we we rarely went to the pediatrician because she was so healthy no fevers no ear infections no nothing she was she wasn't really in the pediatrician's office very often because she was so so healthy yeah. And how about the developmental milestones that everybody's always looking at? How'd she do with those? Physical developmental milestones were all completely on track. Everything was on track. Feeding, gross motor skills, fine motor skills, social skills, all of that seemed to be completely on track. Um, and really, it throughout her toddlerhood, um, up until the point that she it, we enrolled her in, in um, preschool around two and a half. 
everything seemed to be completely fine. And her pediatrician had zero concerns and we had zero concerns. So everybody, the healthcare providers, you, the teachers are making an assumption. Bridie's developing typically. She's developing language. She's developing her speech abilities and repeating words, typically, as you might expect for that age. And then you enroll her in preschool. And then what? In my mind, everything was still completely, everybody was developing, including parents, exactly as they should be. And when we enrolled her in preschool, we believed that she was developmentally ready for preschool and and on, on track with everything with her peers. That's what we believe. And so that was in September and in it was like late January, early February, um, the, the, the parent teacher conference that everybody has mid year was scheduled. And my husband and I went to preschool to sit in the teeny tiny chairs that they make parents sit in. And the preschool teacher got right to the point. And she asked us if we were concerned about Bridie's speech. And we said, no, because we really, we really weren't. And then she so said, she's about what two and a half at this point? Two and a half, two and a half, just a little bit older than two and a half. Right. Okay. Right. And she said, "Do you find her difficult to understand?" And we were like, "Well, yeah, <laughs> but she's you know, isn't that normal?" And the t- and the preschool teacher said, "You know, we are concerned about her speech. Um, she is not she is not developing the way the rest of the class is." And, um, and so I said, okay, okay. And she said, would you consider having her evaluated by early intervention? I had never heard the term before. I didn't know what it was. I said, sure. And so she provided that phone number. Now, had you ever talked with your healthcare provider about Bridie's speech or language development? No. I mean, the he- she was such a healthy kid that the only time we saw her pediatrician was for well checkups and vaccinations. And so those were fairly quick appointments. Um, I do recall a question, um, something along the lines of, do you have any concerns about hearing? And the answer was no. And that was the end of that. Um, so no, there was no conversation about developmental milestones. They were, you know, she, he was asking questions and we were answering them. And then we would leave. So now you have set up the early intervention evaluation, which is in your home. Yes. What happened? I really, it was so not, I was so not concerned that I sent my husband off to work. I sent my oldest off to kindergarten. I took the day off of work because they come to the house to do the intake Bridie was still in her pajamas. And I mean, I gave no thought. I really did not give any thought between making that phone call and saying, hey, I'm supposed to call you. And, uh, you know, I've been suggested that maybe we need to do a speech evaluation for my child. And they set it up quickly and they came. They, I gave no thought to any of those things because I thought, okay, so she has a speech issue. Like, okay, but that's, I really was not concerned at all. And maybe that's because I had one in kindergarten and I have fond memories of being pulled out of, you know, being treated special. I don't know, but it was, um, it was during that evaluation when it became abundantly clear, we were looking at, um, a hearing issue. 
And was that because they did actually a physiologic screening on Bridie during that interview or, or what happened? Uh, yeah. So, um, so they're doing, they, they basically were observing me doing whatever I was doing, wiping the counters and telling Bridie to go brush her teeth or whatever I was doing. Very normal stuff. And at one point they said, okay, Mrs. Abbott, would you please tell Bridie to go into her room and go get three things that she can get safely and bring them to you? And I said, sure. And I said, Bridie, come close to mommy. Come close to mommy. Bridie, I need you to go to your room. I need you to go to your room and get your hat and get your gloves. Go to your room and get your hat and your gloves because after this, we're going outside. So I should interject here that as you are retelling this story, you are gesturing in a very animated way, signaling, gesturing, and even miming what it is you are requesting of her. And so she goes to her room and she gets the things and she brings them back. And I was like, there you go. See, she's fine. And the lady said, great. Thank you so much. And she said, okay, now can you ask her to go into the kitchen and get two or three things that she can get safely and bring them back to you, but don't use your hands. And I'm like, okay, okay. Uh, so I'm thinking of the things I'm okay. And so I said, Bridie, come close to mommy, come close to mommy. That's right. Bridie, go to the kitchen, go to the kitchen, get a spoon. And you're gesturing again, a spoon and a napkin. We're going to have some ice cream. Go to, go, mm -hmm, because your habit of talking to her is accompanied by all of this gesturing and, and your own made up sign language. And so she got her spoon and her napkin and, and brought it. And I was once again, like, see, she's fine. And then uh, they took Bridie and they put her, they sat her in the corner of our living room facing the corner. And, um, and they put her in the corner of the room. And they gave her some blocks and I'm sitting on the sofa and they sat on the sofa behind me. And one of them took out a bell that in my memory was like a hand chime, like you would see in a church hand bell choir. And they pulled it out and started to ring it. And Brody did not respond. And then they took out a different bell with a different tone and started to ring that. And Brody did not turn around or respond at all. And as you can imagine, I thought I, I, every awful feeling a human can have just suddenly I felt like I was both electrocuted and about to throw up it was this awful oh my god kind of what is what did I just witness moment and um I had a meltdown right there and the woman from early intervention said Mrs. Abbott this can be so many things so many things um, I think we may be looking at a hearing issue, but that could be, again, so many things. But the next thing we need to do is to um, line up an audiological evaluation to actually test your hearing and see if, in fact, we're looking at a hearing issue. And they did that through their office um, fairly quickly. So one of the things that comes to my mind as you share that, oh, 
heart-wrenching experience is that we know that some children with a hearing loss may have turned toward the bell because they might have heard it just enough or there may have been some signal in the room that, you know, cued Bridey to turn toward the bell and that if we're only ringing bells, that's not even enough. We really do need a physiologic screening in that moment that you just described, ideally. So the outcome of that, you started to recognize that Bridie was more delayed than you had realized. Correct. Far more, far more delayed. In fact, the, we did not think she was delayed at all. So when they were pointing out specifics, uh, it, it became abundantly clear. Her speech was unintelligible for the most part. There were some words that were crystal clear and others that were completely a different version of what they should be. She could not understand instructions if she could not see your face. So she had become a very, very successful lip reader. And so if she could see your face, she could understand pretty much anything. Uh, but without the ability to see your face, she couldn't understand anything. And that was something we didn't notice. She adapted so that she could communicate, so that she could <laughs> understand. She adapted. And we did not notice what she had done to adapt. Vocabulary in general was she was not on par with where she should be um, developmentally when it comes to just vocabulary. For example, she did not know the difference between she and he. She did not know the difference between um, between under and over and next to and beneath. Like children, by the time they're almost three, have all of that down. You can say, go get, you know, what's beneath the sofa? And they'll go, they know what you're talking about. None of those words made sense to her. By the age that she was, she should have had a really firm vocabulary for understanding information and instructions. And she didn't have that. Um, she didn't know her colors or her numbers um, to the extent that she should by that age. And those are just things that we just didn't notice. We really didn't. Um, she was a chatty, she was a chatty, chatty kid speaking her own language. And we thought that was developmentally normal. And maybe it was up until a point, um, but then it became uh, where she was not progressing. So after the meeting with the early intervention evaluation team, you went on to have the audiological evaluation. Correct. We discovered that Bridie has a moderate sloping to severe bilateral sensory neural hearing loss, and no one could tell us how, when, or why that happened. Yeah, because you're thinking about early on and this language production that was happening where she was communicating with you. Absolutely. She had learned words, many of them correctly, right? Some were correct and some were partially correct and some were completely not. Right. Like a lot of two-year-olds. Like a lot of two-year-olds. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So ultimately, you had this diagnosis. What did, what did you do to address it? Um, we, did, we did move forward with hearing aids. She picked out her colors and we brought them home 
when they finally came, we had ordered custom uh, matching cupcakes with, they were, so her hearing aid. You're talking pink. about the colors of her hearing aids. Yes, yes. So the back was a baby pink and the mold was pink with silver sparkles. And so we got cupcakes with pink frosting and edible silver glitter. Mm -hmm. And we invited the neighbors over and some of her preschool friends um, to show them off. This is the day that she got them, you know, to show them off and to just, it was a kind of fake it till you make it moment. We were still really upset, really panicky. Um, un underneath it all, this, this panicking and uh, guilt, you know, very, very heavily weighing on us, but we were a, uh, let's go big or go home. So this is a compelling story. And yet, you know, what I'm not hearing about is engagement with your healthcare provider. That's right. So you're going to the healthcare provider on schedule to all of these check-ins on your child's development and this significant physiological concern is happening outside of that context. Correct. So where do they get included in this? Yes. So in our case, Bridie received her hearing aids. I think it was the end of April. And so she's birthday, three now. So she's not quite three. She's turned three May 10. Okay. And May was when she had her physical, her well, her annual well checkup. And remember, she's so healthy that there's never a time to ever bring her in before that. And I remember the doctor who was older and we chose him because he was so seasoned and so well-respected in a, you know, a, a pinnacle in this, in the neighborhood. Um, and I remember bringing her in and sitting her on the, you know, the table thing. And he comes in, he's like, Oh, you know, how are things going? And he's grumbly little voice. And he goes to look in her ears and he goes, what is this? And I went, Oh, um, they're hearing aids. And he was like, what? <laughs> I said, and he looks in the other ear and he's like, what? And then he opens up the folder and he's flowing. He goes, she passed her newborn hearing screen. I was like, yeah, yeah, uh -huh, she did. And he's like, but, but, and he's looking through, like looking through the file rigorously and just looking at us with this puzzled look on his face. And we had a couple of months to come to kind of grips with this. And he said, well, did she, did, did she have, did she have fever? Did she have fever? And I'm like, no, no. And he's like, what, wow, what? I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. She has hearing aids. Well, when we went through early intervention, we had our, you know, speech evaluate. And then I told him kind of what happened. And, and what was wild was every appointment after that, every single appointment after that, when he would pull back her hair to check her ears, it was the surprise. And then the, oh, right. This is the kid. It was, you, I could just, my husband, I could feel this sense of how did I miss that? How, how did, how did this happen? And extra ruffling through the file, looking at things. And did we ever figure out what this was? And, you know, kind of. Um, because you can't help but wonder, right? If you had not had that preschool teacher who had brought that to your attention, who first of all noticed. That's right. And second of all, noticed and was concerned enough 
skillful enough to deliver that concern to you, to motivate you to take it to the next step. If none of that had happened, when would this have been discovered and by whom? I That question has been with me for years, years. That specific question of what would have happened if Miss Lily hadn't said, are you concerned about her speech? And what would have happened if she didn't tell me what to, you know, kind of tell me early intervention is where you go? What would have happened if I'd gone back, if she'd said, I think you need to talk with pediatrician. I have no idea what that outcome would have been. What would the outcome have been if she had said, I think you need to have that checked out? What would I have done? I don't know those answers. But it well, all and we, started and we know, question. we know that there are a number of stories of children who are in fact referred for speech therapy, who are enrolled in speech therapy and their hearing status is never determined. Yes. Especially during those first three years of life or during the preschool period. So this story could have gone on much longer. It could have had and had much more of an impact, right? So ultimately the medical community did raise another point of concern about what it really means to be diagnosed. Hearing loss is in a way, in many instances, a symptom of another condition, which in your case is a genetic condition. At some point that first year, I believe it was the pediatrician who was just scratching his head and said, you know, do we, do we know what this is? Do you have to have this in your, you know, all the questions and us and um, mentioned genetic testing. And so we went ahead and had genetic testing done. Part of the reason we wanted to go ahead with genetic testing was my husband and I were feeling very, very guilty for having tried a VBAC delivery and having had that been such an incredible hot mess. We believed that it was probable that her hearing loss was as a result of the trauma that occurred during her day of birth. Whoa, that's a really heavy load to be carrying around. Yeah. And so did, did you ever ask anybody about the likelihood of that being the cause? Yes, it was the geneticist. And so when we were going through the, you know, the, the billions of questions that they ask. Um, and I was telling the birth story. At some point I said, my husband and I are, feel like it was, it was the, the, the uterine rupture nightmare that, that caused this. Um, but we're, you know, we're doing genetic testing so that, you know, whatever. And she said, I highly doubt given she was not in a NICU. There was, she came home very healthy. I highly doubt that was the cause of this. Um, but we're going to, we're going to test for, you know, something very, very specific called Connexin 26. And um, it's a needle in the haystack, but let's just see if the needle's there. And so she sent off the labs. I get a letter in the mail that says inconclusive. And I was like, I don't understand what this letter says. <laughs> 
I don't understand what this letter says. So I called and I said, I need to speak with the doctor because I think I know what this says, but I want to hear it from her. And so she called back and I said, okay, can I just paraphrase what I think this letter says? And she said, sure. And I said, what I think this letter says is that Bridget has inherited Connects in 26, but she has only inherited it from one parent. And, and therefore, we cannot say with certainty that Connexin 26 was the cause of her hearing loss because you need it from two parents and not just one. And she's, and therefore, that's why this is an, it's inconclusive. And she said that you read that correctly. And I said, okay, but is it possible that science has not yet determined that maybe you only need one parent with Connexin 26 to cause hearing loss. Because what are the chances that my child loses her hearing at the time frame that Connexin 26 can cause hearing loss in children and she has Connexin 26, but it's only from one parent. And she said, is that possible? Absolutely. And I said, okay, well, do you think, do you think that if we have to make a, if, if we're balancing between it was a, it was as a result of her birth story or as a result of this it connects in 26. And she said, your child's hearing loss was not as a result of the birth story that you described to me. And that just, just suddenly, suddenly it was like this giant weight overnight just disappeared and the amount of guilt that we were carrying was in was cut in half and um she said however as a scientist i can't tell you um conclusively that connection 26 is what caused her hearing loss and we said to her well we are choosing to say that is what caused it because that's what we believe so that genetic diagnosis evaluation and diagnosis of connexin 26 first and foremost helped you in a psychological way but then it also contributed it to an understanding of some of the important things you needed to be paying attention to in terms of Bridie's hearing status. When Connexin 26 can be progressive yes. or it may be stable. Yes. And so in your case, you found out that you've discovered over time that Bridie's is a stable hearing um, loss, right? Yes, but because we believed that it was as a result of Connexin 26, and we knew that Connexin 26 can be progressive, we had her hearing tested for the first year or two every three months, then it was every six months for a couple of years, and then it was every year. And um, and now she's 17. And now she's 17. Yeah, and it hasn't changed. No, it's exactly the same. Yeah, and when you look back, can you kind of have a guess about, like, we're pretty sure, right, that she was hearing at birth. Yes. I feel and very so, confident that she was, yes. Yeah. And that you experienced a, a, a fairly adequate hearing level as, a, as an infant and up until about what year, what month? 
You know, at some Would point, yeah, at some point along the way, someone suggested that her hearing loss may have occurred at about that it was likely around 18 months of age. So in the middle of toddlerhood, because some of her words, the ones that a child learns very, very early on, even before they're talking, um, those were correct. But the words that you might start to acquire after in later toddlerhood, those were the ones that were, I mean, all over the place. So Bridie is now 17. Yes. How is she doing? She is thriving in all the ways that a 17-year-old should thrive, right? So she will be graduating from high school. She just, she has a job. Um, she is involved in extracurricular things. She has friends that she hangs out with. Um, she bought her own car and she just got into her first choice college, which is a big deal. And, um, she's thriving and all kids like her should thrive in whatever way they're supposed to be thriving. So Bridie uses hearing aids and she is a chatty kid. So she uses listening and spoken language in English. And that from the very beginning, that combination of hearing aids and listening and spoken language um, was what really worked best for her. And so that's, she communicates with the, with the world the way that we do in our, in our own family. We've seen firsthand what happens when we catch children early when we get them kindergarten ready, when we invest everything we possibly can into their development and their success, because they're capable of anything, these kids, but we have to find them first. We have to find these children with unidentified hearing loss first. We have to find these children sooner we, because I saw first, I've seen firsthand what happens to language and literacy when a child's hearing loss goes undetected and not even for that long. When we think about it, she may, it was maybe a year. It was maybe a year that she did not have full access to the sounds for speech and look at the damage that it did and just how derailed she became in terms of kindergarten readiness. Now, since that time, you've become a national advocate for early identification of hearing loss and raising the awareness of, of monitoring the hearing status of children throughout all of these important developmental stages. And I know you've heard stories, Valerie, about how people don't think of hearing first. When a child may be developing in some unusual ways or displaying behaviors which may be accommodating for any number of, of things that may be going on for them. You know, when, when a child is presenting with behaviors that are not making sense or seem to be off or whatever terminology we want to use. I always hear people, not just parents, but other family members saying, I wonder if it's autism. Do you think it could be autism? Or I wonder if these are the early signs of ADD or I bet he has ADHD. No one ever, <laughs> have I ever heard say, I wonder if 
he can hear clearly. I wonder if there's been a change in the way he hears the world ever. Everyone seems to be going to the conversations about autism and the conversations about ADD or ADHD. So one of the things that I have learned is that we need to be conducting hearing screening before all of the other things that we might be screening for with the child, whether that's screening for autism, screening for a speech delay, and certainly before enrolling a child in, um, in speech therapy. Too often, we have children who um, are identified with autism, and then it stops there, or a child that is identified with a speech delay, and it stops there. We enroll them in speech therapy. Well, maybe there's also hearing loss. Maybe hearing loss is actually what is the root cause of the speech delay. But too often, um, the, he the hearing screen is at the end of the process, if it even happens at all. And so um, we need to put the hearing evaluation part on the front end of all of these screening practices. And the other thing we know is that the vast majority of children who are deaf or hard of hearing are born into hearing families, typical hearing parents. And so that's, that's a fact we all need to be aware of. It's, it's the majority. Valerie, thank you so much for telling your story and for motivating all of us to pay closer attention to monitoring the hearing status of children throughout their early lives, to not rely solely on newborn hearing screening results as a sort of stable if they pass then, then it has to somehow mean they would pass today result so that we keep paying attention, especially if changes start to occur in children. Do you have any final parting messages you'd like to give our listeners? Sure. I am convinced that we can find children with postnatal hearing loss sooner, but it takes all of us to be part of this conversation, opening our eyes all the time, adding to the, the commentary. And I do, I do believe that we can find them sooner, but it's going to require every single one of us. That was Valerie James Abbott. I'm Will Iserman at the National Center for Hearing Assessment and Management. And I want to invite you to join us for our other podcast at earwormpodcast.org for dialogues on hearing health you just can't stop thinking about. Can't stop thinking about what you just said. It keeps rolling around in my head. Can't stop thinking about what you just said. It keeps rolling around in my head. Earworm is produced at the National Center for Hearing Assessment and Management, NCHAM, at Utah State University, USU, and is funded in part by a cooperative agreement from the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, MCHB, of the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Any views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by participants in Earworm are solely that of the participants, and no endorsement by NCHAM, USU, or MCHB, HRSA is implied or expressed.